Hello, Reptile Entrepreneurs. This is Bill Strand, and today I bring you an interview with Justin Kobelka of Canova. Justin's name is synonymous with ball pythons, and he's helped build up that industry. But backing all those gorgeous snakes is a company that's been in the process of building for 20 years. And I wanted to bring Justin on and learn how he took a breeding project in his dorm room and ended up with an international business. Please join me in welcoming Justin Kobelka of Canova to the Reptile Entrepreneur Podcast. Good morning, Reptile Entrepreneurs. I am here with Justin Kobelka of Canova. And if you're in the uh, ball python industry, you know him well. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. Uh, it, it's really great to have you on because uh, you were one of the architects and you built up uh, part of the ball python industry. You're, you're one of the people who built it up. And so uh, you're going to be uh, very valuable as to your perspective into how the community grew and where it is right now. and uh, but, but let's start off with uh, just giving a baseline of an introduction to Canova. Sure. So Canova Reptiles, it's Canova Reptiles. We, we kind of shortened it to Canova. Okay. Um, we've been Canova now for about four or five months. Um, prior to that, we were Jacob Elka Reptiles for many years. And we currently are a, a ball python breeding facility. We have about five employees now, including me. I consider myself an employee of the business. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're team members, right? And we, we deal with about 1500 ball pythons, um, as far as our stock. And then we hatch about 12 to 1500 babies per season. And we are just honored to have an insanely amazing market that we sell into here in the U S and we sell about 30 to 40% overseas as well okay. um, of our, of our babies. So we have quite a, quite an international market that seemingly grows every year as well. So it's been it's been an amazing twenty year journey. This is our actually this is our nineteenth year. I'm rounding it up, and uh, it's 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 been incredible. Okay, uh, so I want to go back to the beginning, but uh, not not the beginning of uh, reptiles, but that first day that you said I'm going to make this a business, uh, or can I make this a business? Let's go to that point. Uh, take us to the point where you first said, hmm. I wonder if I could do this. I think I stumbled into it uh, in, in more ways than one, because although I came from a background where most of my relatives were entrepreneurs, I never felt like I had any specific ability or understanding of how that works. Okay. And so for me, it started out as the love of reptiles in general. Um, and then in college, it became the love of um, certain, of actually breeding the reptiles for the first time. We worked with milk snakes and, and Cinnalone milk snakes and some corn snakes and that sort of thing. Um, but it was probably about five years later where I thought, well, this is actually something that, you know, there could be some income from. There's something that I can maybe actually support my life with it a little bit. And I don't remember that exact moment. Um, for me, I, I, I think I just slowly eased into it and started to realize like, hey, this is something that if I really put myself forward on, it could continue to grow. Um, yeah. Do you remember how much of that was, hey, there is a market for this, and so I'm going to uh, service that market, and how much of it was, this is my passion, and I'm going to do it no matter how much money I get back from it? It's definitely a passion initially. Okay. Um, it was. I realized that there was money in it, and it was from some of the original ball python breeders at the time, People like Ralph Davis, especially, 
he was one of the early ball python breeders that was really out there on the internet and showing not just the ball pythons, but but the lifestyle and everything. He was very flamboyant in the sense that he was very, very open about, hey, there's all this money and this and that. And as a, I loved snakes. And then I thought, well, here's a chance. Here's a situation where I love snakes and these snakes actually are worth something okay. that I could see actually growing into some, into some, into some value. Um, I did not understand the market at all when I got into it. Like I had, had the smallest understanding of what I do now about it, but I just loved the snakes. And so I just started being very passionate. I started talking about it constantly to everyone about these ball pythons or these white, there's these white ball pythons, these albino ball pythons, and they're amazing. And I just became a cheerleader for my my dreams, essentially. So much so that one of my relatives, my uncle, came to me and said, "Hey, can I invest in ball pythons with you?" <laughs> and that scared that scared really me really bad. It really did because I didn't want the pressure of yeah my family paying you know investing in my dreams. I knew that it had to work, and I had to you know there's a lot of pressure, but it made something possible that was impossible otherwise for me. And he actually pushed me pretty hard to accept his investment <laughs> into these initial animals that I got started with. Yeah. People don't realize that it, it sounds great when you have family investing. Oh, I've got some money, but the pressure that comes along with that is uh, pretty immense. Yes. It was the first loan I'd ever taken in my life. In fact, he started out more of a partner partnership kind of situation where he's like, well, let's do this together. But now looking back at it, I think a lot about like, it's it's really about, these businesses are about people power and finding someone who has that kind of passion is more important than I think even just a business idea. Mm-hmm. Like, because I think my uncle saw in me some, somebody who wasn't going to fail. Mm-hmm. Like I had Good. way too much passion to fail. And I was way too serious about it. and And so much so that he was pushing me to take his money even when I wasn't even really asking for it, mm-hmm. um, it was quite a quite an, an involvement of uh, of the, the business. So, what was it like in the early days trying to build a business? Because we know building a business, there's that honeymoon period where you're everything's going great, you're spending money. That's the honeymoon period, uh, but then it comes down to the point where money's got to come back in. Uh, tell us about that point in your building the business. So I definitely slow roaded it compared to a lot of people. You know, nowadays, if I was looking to do it all over again, I would know exactly what to do and I'd spend a lot and I would make the right choices and et cetera. Back then, I was never really sure what the right choices for the market were. And the ball python market at the time was very different than it is now. Back then, it was really based on we have these new mutations. We're reproducing more of them and selling them to the market. Um, and it was more about one gene at a time. Like we have a new albino, let's make albinos. And we're make albinos until something new comes along. And then we're going to make those until those get cheap. And then we're going to make something else until those get cheap. And I initially got in with that same kind of idea because that was the, the business model that everyone had. But pretty early on, I was like, well, you know, we can combine these and actually make stack these genes and make new stuff. Mm-hmm. And that interested me a lot more than just making more of something making more of something with something I'd already done a little bit with the king snakes and everything. And I liked the idea of improving the the look of them, making them look better over time, and also stacking and making stacking genes to make new things that had never been seen. And so early on, at a time when I really 
probably from a just strictly business point of view, I probably should have done what the market was doing, um, which is just re- reproduce these genes to get the money back, to pay back my uncle, to do these things. But what I actually did was something that I was in that honeymoon period. I was just in love with the whole process. I was in love with what I was doing. I was in love with, with the idea of these morphs and where it could lead. And I was not thinking about it as, well, I've got to build something here that, that makes money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so I, early on, I started reproducing these genes, putting them together, making animals that have genetics that are hidden, right? They're multi-het heterozygous animals. And, and creating things that, at the time, very few people were doing. And what I was doing is I was holding back most of those babies. I was just like rebanking, reinvesting in myself the money that I did not make by selling them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And my goal for the first five years was pay back my uncle. And so I would sell just enough to pay him back his monthly amount every month of interest and and I literally did not make a dollar on the snakes at all during that time. I'd hold back my animals or purchase new ones. Everything went back in, kept my job, and um, I had a really good a good job that was. I mean, it wasn't great paying, but it was it was good and nice and steady. And so I just every night I'd come home work on the snakes, and it was it didn't even feel like work, mm-hmm. you know, like like a lot of times if you're just fully passionate about it. So it was a it was a process to get through that that period, but it was it was. I never felt like work to me. Could you explain the ball python market to somebody who's not in the ball python market? It, it just seems like a strange thing where you keep come up with these different colors and uh, who's buying these different colors. And is it just breeders buying the, the different colors and uh, how does that work? Right. It's a great, it's, it's really interesting. It's like if you combined reptiles with Pokemon in a way or, you know, or, or, or these other collectible things that are, you know, beanie babies or whatever fat of the day. And the difference is it never really stops and there's always new people, you know, interested. So it's basically you have these different genetics. They all, they all ended up out, came out of the wild initially, or vast majority came straight out of the wild. And all we've done is slowly stacked these different naturally occurring mutations, stacked them to create different looks. And so we have a vast variety of well over 10,000 different individual combinations now of, of these ball pythons, which is only skin deep in the end. They're just a ball python underneath, mm-hmm. but it has an amazing mass appeal for people because first of all, it's, they're just pretty much the pet, the best pet snake. I mean, you could, you could, you could make some arguments against that, but they are, they're very docile. They stay relatively small. And I think the thing that lends to them the most to them is the fact that they're they pretty much kind of sit in your hand. Mm-hmm. Some people hate that they don't move around their cage much or they're not very visual. But when you're actually holding them, you can actually hold them. They're not like, you know, leaving uh-huh. you constantly, right? Like run, running away. So there's like the both sides to that. And because it's such mass appeal, because they stay small, because they don't mind the small caging and that sort of thing, they just become like the ultimate pet snake for most people. Okay. And then they find out, look, Hey, I can get all these colors and patterns and Hey, I could maybe make some of these colors and patterns. And so there's a hobby aspect, a, a, a project aspect, a collection aspect, okay. and it all kind of plays into our human nature desire to create. Yeah. Um, and so it just grows and grows and grows and it never stagnates so far, at least for 20 years in, it's never stagnated in the sense that every year, amazingly, they just get better. The combos get brighter and prettier and different. There's always something new. 
And we've never, I think we're still a long ways from finding the edge of what's possible. So in that way, the market, would you say it has stayed the same as far as what drives the market? Yes, in that sense. It just took a few years for people to realize that that we're going to run out of single genes just to make money on. That really what's about long-term is just creating these new combos and enjoying them and taking the time it takes. So for those of us who got in very early and started banking a really, really diverse collection of animals with all the different genetics and the ability, like, it's like having all the paints when you're trying to paint a painting. Um, you have all the paints at your disposal and you start to learn how to use them very well. You become kind of masterful at using them. That's the advantage of coming into the market early. Um, okay. It's now nowadays it's a little harder to jump in because the learning curve is very steep. Like I got in, I learned five genes. There's only five genes at the time. I just learned a few every year as they came out, collected a few every year as they came out. But nowadays you get in, there's 150 genetics, recessives and incomplete dominance, and they all interact in different ways. And there's some that are lethal and some that have problems. The vast majority don't. But there's just a learning curve is immense. I don't know that I, I could start over and, and, and do as well as I've done if I was getting in right now. It's, it's just a lot to know and a lot to learn. So if somebody was getting in, I mean, conceptually, you would say, okay, if somebody's coming in right now, they can just, if they had the money, they could go and they could buy a bunch of high-end ball pythons and boom, they're set. Next year, they could be sitting at the show right next to you selling supposedly the same quality of ball python. Uh, does that happen or why does that not happen? No, I deal with, with people every day who are wanting to do that. Okay. Um, I get to deal with a lot of really high-end buyers and people are, you know, at all levels of the spectrum as far as, as far as buyers go. I would say that what I have learned having dealt with, I would say several dozen people a year who really want to make this a business and coming to me for their collection needs to get started. I would say in the end that it really comes down to the person more than anything else. Mm -hmm. they, they, I can just tell pretty soon from talking to them, they, they have a practicality to them and understanding of how, of how they want to operate. And, they're, and I just I can really tell if, if someone's going to be successful. Okay. I don't think it's as dependent on the little choices they make as, as much as, as the person that they are. Okay. Well, how do you see the market different today than it was 20 years ago? It's amazing now compared to what it was 20 years ago. At the beginning, it was um, it was interesting and cool, but nobody knew if it was going to last. When I mm -hmm. first started investing, people at the shows were being like, I wouldn't spend that kind of money, man. We, this is going to be all gone in two years. This is going to go away. And they were really pushing me not to do it. And I was like, well, it's not my money. And he, he wants to do this. And so I'm just kind of along for the ride at this point. And and uh, but people, all through the years, people have been saying it's going to go away. But what's happened instead is that is that it's just gotten richer and richer as far as mm -hmm. what we're doing with the animals. And then more than anything, the market has just become massive across the U.S. You know, it used to be very cottage, the, the reptile industry and a lot of infighting between the breeders because we were all trying to sell to each other. In the end, there was no mm -hmm. real real pet market no secondary market and so we were like fighting oh i saw him sell it for twenty dollars cheaper than that guy and then he's trying yeah. to undercut me so i hate him and like there's a lot of that going on but that has eased as people realize like yeah we do sell to each other a bit but in the end we're all making animals that are for a wider appeal um market and it's not about individual cutting you know cutting each other down or anything we could do this better together 
and, and so now I, I think it's a a much more enjoyable market mm-hmm. um, for for anybody coming in compared to how it was then. It was very cutthroat. So where do you see these new customers coming from? Mostly they're coming just directly out of the general public. They're coming out of people who find um, our YouTube channel or not even so much mine, sometimes mine, but usually they start with Brian Barcheck mm-hmm. or some of these um, pet tubers, right, that are now have literally millions of subscribers. And they'll, they'll kind of stumble onto them. They'll learn a little bit about reptiles. And when they look at their first reptile, they'll look at a corn snake or a ball python or a chameleon or something, you know. And it'll kind of just like trigger it. You, you know how that is when people get their first reptiles, like trigger oh, yeah. them. Um, and a certain number of people are going to be like, okay, this is an addiction now. It just it swallows them up. And, um, and so I think, I think most when I, when I deal with new customers a lot, a lot of times they'll say, Hey, I saw, I watched Brian Barjik on YouTube and then I snuggled onto your channel and then I saw these amazing ball pythons and now I'm addicted and I want to buy some. All right. So I'm going to take that question and I'm going to expand it to how do you see the reptile, the entire reptile community uh, as different today than it was 20 years ago? I, I don't know that I have a great view of the entire community. Okay. I just know that like the shows get bigger, the shows get get stronger, um, that the ability to buy captive bred animals now is so much greater. And, and, and it's amazing to me, like every year you walk through these shows and you see a new table of somebody who is now making a few animals, not even very many, a few animals in their basement and it's their business and it's their passion. And now we have all these outlets for animals that you couldn't get captive bred now are captive bred. Mm-hmm. And, and not just that, they're higher quality better looking, better cared for. Um, when, when I first got into the industry and started going to shows and stuff, it, you'd be lucky to find a captive bred ball python or a captive bred Burmese python or even a boa. It was all very, very wild caught, very dirty. You know, people who weren't, you know, it's, 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 it's become a very mainstream industry now compared to how it's been. Yeah, and that's happening across the entire reptile community. Uh, it's very exciting for, I mean, uh, those of us who are in the community to be able to deal with such quality now, uh, it's great. Now you mentioned, uh, something before about, you can tell a certain type of person how they're going to be as a breeder. And so I'd like to, uh, look into what does it take to be a successful breeder in today's reptile market? I don't know that I would, I would try to push people into a box on that. But I just know for my journey, what I see, what I see in myself and what I see in others that have done pretty well, I see a, a love of the animals. Definitely. You can't have, I've never seen anybody who doesn't have a real passion for the animals mm-hmm. do well. Doesn't matter if they come in and be like, Hey, there's some money in this. And can I buy these animals? And how much money could I make? As soon as I start asking that question, if I buy these animals, how much money could I make? That tells me right there that, I just don't see those people, you know, do very well in the, over the course of two to three years. Mm-hmm. When I see people who, when by contrast, people come in and be like, I love this project. I love these animals. And I think I can make this a business. Could you help me learn how? That is a different, whole different way of going at it. And I just find that, that those people will be around long term. And then combine that with the fact that I think... I think in its own who has an entrepreneurial spirit, there is this, this attitude of I'm going to figure it out mm-hmm. versus um, I need someone to tell me how. 
And we all, I mean, we all are staying on the shoulders of people who came first to learn how to do things. But at the same time, there has to be this thing where I'm going to just get my feet wet. I'm going to get a little dirty. I'm going to make a few mistakes, but I'm going to do something until I learn. And when I see someone doing that, they'll be like, hey, I got this rack. I hooked it up. I, I, I put the heat probes in. It's going a little hot. So I messed with this and I figured it out. And then I was wondering if you had a question. If I had a question about this. I can't figure it out. That's someone who's just, he's in the weeds with it. You know, he's trying to figure yeah, it out. Yeah. And they're like, okay, I have these girls. They've got follicles. And I ultrasounded it. And I'm not sure what happened here. But, you know, those are the kind of questions of like this person, they're, they're going to make it. Yeah. They're, they're just in it. They're just in it. And they're, and they're not too afraid to make a mistake. And to me, that is a big part of it. Um, or, the, or people who, who, who realize I've gone a little bit of a wrong direction. Like, hey, I got into this project. I don't think there's really any life to this. I'm thinking about pivoting into something else versus just going down with the ship. Mm-hmm, those those mm-hmm. sort of practicality yeah. is what I look for in somebody. And that's what I recognize in myself. Like if without that, I don't think I can make it either. It's just that get your, get your feet, you know, get your hands dirty. Um, and I think it's a little harder for people now because there's so much information, the information overload, there may be more, less encouraged to try it on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's try definitely out. very intimidating because there's so much out there. Uh, well, let's talk right. about during your building of your business, were there some points where you didn't know if this was going to work? You didn't know if you were going to do continue this? Yes. Um, most of my doubts came during times of failure. Um, maybe we'll have an animal that, that didn't thrive or a project that worked for a really long time. And I felt like I got really kicked in the, kicked in the butt on it, you know, and I just like didn't know if, you know, I, the thing with the animal care, especially when you have a large collection is that you, you, <laughs> it's not even a pun really, cause we are in the rat race. We deal with rats every day. It's a rat race in the sense that the animals, they never take a vacation. They always yeah. may be fed and they always poop and they always need their waters clean. And it's just, you're, you're on this endless treadmill of animal care. And that can get tiring, especially the larger your collection is. You realize like I, people will get into business so they have some freedoms, but animal care, there's only so much freedom you can have yeah. um, when you are when you have all these lives dependent on you. And so for me, that I, even today I have fantasies about just like, just being like, all the animals are gone and I can just do whatever I want. And I don't have to think about, <laughs> think about what they need for, you know, it's like, it's like sending your kids off to college. I mean, I know you don't, you still have to worry about your kids after they're in college, but, but you never get to send your animals off to college if you're in the business still, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so there've been times through the years, like when you get a real, you know, you, you hatch an amazing animal and it doesn't thrive and it dies. And you're like, I worked for five years on that. And I may work for five years to get to it again. Mm-hmm. Hey, what am I doing this for? You know, that sort of thing. Um, those, those get fewer and fewer bar between as you, as you learn and you learn how to deal with the difficulties. You're like, every time you feel this down moment, you know that you've had other down moments and, and things got better, right? As you experience those cycles, you get better. But it, uh, it's, it's, I think that's the hardest part. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the endless cycle of animals. As much as you love it, there'll be times when it, you just feel like it's getting to you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So in, during the points of growing a business, there's always those, there's points where it's time to make a serious decision and it's like, 
okay, am I going to grow this business? And if I do, there's a massive investment. There's a moving to a building. There is a huge risk that needs to be taken to get to the next level. Do I want to do it? Uh, tell us about some of those points in your business. Yes. For me, the first major one was um, hiring my first team member, my first employee. That was a very hard decision to make. You know, it's funny because I'm the business mind between my wife and I, but it's been her encouragement that has got me past these hurdles at every every stage. Um, she encouraged me and said, you know, Justin, you can't do it all yourself. You know, you mm. if you're going to do this, you're going to have to get help. And and she, you know, helped me really make those hard decisions. So the first person I brought in, you know, as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs are known at being really good at a lot of things, right? Because we, because we, that's, we have many interests, we have many skills. And so it's hard to bring somebody in and trust them to do something that you're already pretty good at. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's often hard to find somebody who's better at you at one of these things. But they're totally out there. And when you start to find them, it frees you. And, oh, it's just an amazing experience when you find someone who's better at something than you are and you can trust them. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you do that a couple times and your mind just opens up to the possibilities. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, I would hire a hundred of these people <laughs> if I could find a hundred of those people. And it became about, it comes to be more about how do we find more wonderful people yeah. and not about how, you know, not being, I feel like you're, you got to fight with them over things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so hiring the first employee was a very hard decision. The second one was actually quitting my day job okay. and working with the snakes full time. Um, for me, it came, you know, after I had paid off my uncle, so we were about seven years into the business. And like I said, during that time, we were just, I was, I was building a, a large, um, large amount of equity in the business as far as the collection goes, but I wasn't, we weren't bringing any of that home. You know, there's no, no putting food on the table. And, is after my uncle got paid off and I could breathe for a second. Like, well, the only person I owe anything to is myself at this moment, mm. you know, and I can just, I can think about, we were at the point where, where after I was done paying him, we could bring in enough to, to almost cover our expenses. Right. With, if I quit my other job and then my wife, she's so smart. She, she says, well, if you, if you're almost covering your expenses and you're just working the evenings and every extra minute you get when you're not at your job, imagine if you were to dedicate a hundred percent of your mm. really good, solid working, waking hours on the business. You know that you could push 20% more. I'm like, I probably totally could. And, and it's all the best hours. You know, those morning hours when you're awake mm -hmm. and you're working, mm -hmm. you know, I was giving those all to the other company. And, and as soon as I, as soon as I quit, like this, I felt, I felt the, 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 the burden I'd thrown off of my, of my uncle's loan was a new burden. Like I got to support my family now. Right? right. Yeah. And the amount of motivation that gave me was just obscene. I was so motivated. I literally broke it down. I'm like, okay, so here's how much I need to survive. That means I need to make a hundred dollars. Um, at the time it's like, I think it was like $102 a day is what I had to make <laughs> in sales somehow. Right. In, over the, in, to make enough for the month. Yeah. In order yeah. to cover our expenses. And then every day I'd make $110 and be like, Hey, I, I won today. I got to make sure I don't yeah. lose tomorrow. And then it make, the next day I make $120. I'm like, okay, I have a little bit ahead now. How can I keep this going forward? It was so motivating. It became a game and it became an amazing thing, but that never would have happened if I hadn't like dove off that edge and said, think or swim. It's time. It's time to swim. And for, for me, as business has gone on, 
we get to more of those points where it's like think or swim and I'd be more and more anxious to dive off because I haven't done it a few times. Mm. I know that the good thing's coming. Um, our first big building we built was another major point like that where like putting a bunch of money into a building, like what if this, what if, you know, it was right in 2008, in fact, I think was when we were doing one of them and like the economy is going like, like I didn't know if ball pythons, people would want ball pythons if the economy went really, really south. Um, I, I didn't know what would happen in the end. People love their hobbies, no matter what the economy does. That's what we learned. <laughs> they're kind of recession proof. It seems like these animals are, they're, they're the same yeah, no matter and, what. And then when the uh, pandemic hit, all of a sudden things went through the roof. Right. I, I was scared to death when the pandemic hit. I, I, yeah. And I was too. I have a, a business, a caging business, and it, it just, it just went through the roof. It was, I couldn't keep up with what was going on. But there's one thing that I want to bring out in what you said that's been a common thread through the interviews. It's when your spouse, your partner believes in you and says, yeah, you should do that. Uh, there is something about having your partner in life support you and say, I'm willing to go through this with you and do what it takes. Uh, that It's like it's an amazing how how what you feel and the support you feel it's like you could do anything amen for sure all right justin let's just do a little uh shooting the breeze here and let's take a scenario of somebody who is passionate about breeding any sort of reptile and let's talk about what they're going to uh, face when they come into the market and let's touch on first uh, and this is not going into uh, anything about ball pythons or any reptile in particular. We're just uh, we're just putting together a scenario here. If we were uh, advising somebody who's coming to you and says, "Hey, I have a passion," uh, so looking at the market, what would you say is a good way to determine if a reptile has a a potential for a future as a a, a business? That's a good question. Um, I think that you, you have to evaluate um, how how easy they are to produce. It's always a big question. And not not that hard. If they're hard to produce, it's not necessarily a bad thing because I can hold values really good. Mm-hmm. But I would, I, would, I would question whether or not they're – how big the market is probably the first question. How big is the market when how, how far is it going to trickle down? There are thousands of people who want this species. Are there dozens of people who want this species? Mm-hmm. And of those people, how hard are they to keep? Are they going to have success with it on a pet level? Are they, you know, are they only going to be people who are very, very serious, um, who are able to have success with this species? That's the question I'd ask. How big the market is, first of all, and, and whether or not it's going to be a growing mm-hmm. market. How can you fit in like that? Um, and then based on those answers, I think you'd you, you start looking at values and how the cost to produce and, and that sort of thing. How much did you think that you had to build the ball python market or did it grow up around you? I think it had a large effect on it, but just one of many. Um, I, I've come to have one of the largest social media presences and marketing presences in this industry. But I, you know, I don't want to take the credit because I just, I just don't think that'd be accurate. It, it, it I, I look at myself as like 
one of the biggest cheerleaders for mm -hmm. our industry because I'm always trying to make something that inspires everyone to think that, oh, wow, that we're not done here. That's always my thought. It's like, what can I make that every year that just makes everybody say, wow, I didn't even think that was possible. And every year we just keep finding something new like that. I don't want it to be ever feel stale. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's my biggest role in this industry. If I look at me as a, as a, as a part of the, the amount of volume of sales and, and everything, I think I'm just a tiny sliver okay. um, of, of that, of a, of a really big hole. So how do you see the future going for your particular market in, in ball pythons? Is it just more, I mean, what are you developing? Yeah, we're just doing, we're just going to the next, always trying to make it better and better. It's, we at any given moment we have you know probably 30 to 40 different individual projects that every year we're just like well what can we add to this to make it a little bit better even if it's just um selective breeding something to make it better um I, the only way i have to evaluate the future is to look at the past and and what i see in the past is is that every year the amount of people who want ball pythons grows okay. every year the amount of people who want to produce ball pythons grows and every year the demand, you know, we talk a little bit about it as, as a pyramid scheme in the sense because because I mean, we have highest value of animals because the combo is all the way down. And no matter where people get in there, they're always trying to move up it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and some projects I'm at the very, very, very top and sometimes I'm not. But as long as more people keep getting involved, um, then I know that that there's going to be just, just incredible demand for everybody all along the way. It's um, It's... It's really neat to see. So another way I evaluate it is that for me, it was the piebald ball python that really lit me on the ball pythons. Um, I actually spent a year in Africa where ball pythons are from, and I didn't think anything of them. I just I saw them in the wild. I didn't, never thought that they would become my, mm. my lifelong passion at the time. And when I saw a piebald ball python at a reptile show when I came home, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is something special and it's such a neat little package. And I, I fell in love with the idea of it. And and I, I've i come to realize that piebald ball pythons specifically are like a gateway drug for people into ball pythons. Okay. And, and as we've seen piebalds and some of these amazing mutations become less and less expensive and actually start to show up in maybe some pet stores somewhere, a Petco or a PetSmart, I realized that what's happening to me on a, on a tiny scale is now happening to the public on a very large scale. And people are being, uh, are learning about these mutations and they're being shoehorned into this idea of there's these amazing snakes out there. We didn't have no idea about. And then I say, well, if you took a ball Python, amazing combo and you took it out on the street and you showed a hundred people for the public, 50 of them would be go, that's gross. It's a snake. Mm -hmm. Right. And 25 people would be like, Oh, it's pretty cool. You know? And, and probably five of those hundred would be like, I got to have one of these. That's amazing. It's like the most incredible work of art. And it looks nothing like anything I've ever seen. And like, they're just gushing. If we just took five out of every hundred mm -hmm. in America, you know how much this market has to grow, how much exposure it still has left. It's barely, we're barely touching it right now. And it sounds like the ball python is a great, uh, great first uh, snake pet or reptile pet to get them into the industry. Absolutely. Uh, do you have a sense for how many people uh, uh, of your customers are just interested in a very cool looking pet and how many are wanting to be a breeder? 
I would say the vast majority of my customers want to be a breeder, but I would say most of them do not want to have a business. Okay. I would say most of them are looking at it as a family project or a personal endeavor or hobby project, which, which is great. You know, that's what I, I always, that's the first question I ever ask a customer and they say, Hey, I want your help, you know, figuring out what I want and what to get. And I first, my first question is always, what are your goals? Mm -hmm. You know, do you want to have a business or do you want to make an amazing snake for yourself? Do you want to have an amazing experience with your kids developing something and seeing it grow over, you know, many years, whatever your goal is, I'm going to try to, you know, lead you the right way and get you the right animals for that. Okay. And how many of these people uh, end up getting sucked in and can't get away from ball pythons because they're so darn cool to work with? I would say most of them. I don't, I don't know because I think a lot of people, you know, I, I deal with them once, but then they deal with many other breeders many times and I don't know what happens, you know, but, um, all the time we have people who say, you know, my kid wanted a one ball Python and now we have 30 mm -hmm. in our, in our basement and, and we love it. And, and the whole family is just crazy about them. And it, it definitely escalates. For okay. Sure. Well, I have one last question. That's from a chameleon guy. That's me. Uh, that uh, has only seen ball pythons. And so I don't know much about the actual uh, market, but uh, how is uh, the health concern uh, with all of this breeding? Uh, yeah, they're very, very, seemingly there's not a lot of issues. Uh, we have, there's several inter, um, interactions of genetics that we've learned we can't do. Okay. Like one mutation doesn't play nice with another mutation. But for the most part, they're very, very, um, we've not had any, any real issues with mutations, like somehow degrading the lifespan or the health of the animals. We've not really seen that. We just learned like, well, you can't do this. That's not the right thing. And, and we're talking about maybe uh, of the whole range of possibilities, maybe three to 5% or like we would stay away from this little okay. area, this zone. Um, we, even with we, we we try to avoid inbreeding and all that, but also but at the same time we haven't seen that there's a big price to be paid for for that as well. They seem to be very tolerant of that. Um, they're they're really the kind of animal that anybody can come in without a lot of knowledge of every interaction and probably not run into any major okay. problems. All right, Justin. In in closing this up. Do you have any other thoughts about being an entrepreneur in the reptile market? Absolutely. So, so for me, I think it's about letting that entrepreneurial mind be interested in knowing everything there is to know about it. And so for me, that, that took a form of, I started really absorbing a lot of books whenever I run into something, I don't really know what to do in this situation, or I don't know how to think about this financial world that we're moving into, or I don't know what this is. For me, I started listening to like all these amazing books, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad was one of my amazing, amazing series that just transformed how I felt, how I understood business, right? Or how I understood life and financial things. Okay. And as an entrepreneur, you're, you can never separate your love for the animals from the actual business of doing it. And I tell you this all the time. If you, if you don't love the animals, you're not going to succeed. If you don't understand and love the financial side, you're not going to succeed you have to have an inquiring mind. And for me, I listen to or read uh, pretty much at least one or two books a month, if, if, I, if not more. 
Um, and I'll listen to the same books over and over again. And as I learn, I get something different from each time. And I, that's just how my, my, my mind works. And I don't think I could have made it without those resources of people who've gone before. And they don't have to be in our business um, because the same, the same sort of things apply. Yeah. All right, Justin, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight, perspective, and a little bit of history. My pleasure. It's been amazing. I've enjoyed it a lot. And it's, it's always fun to talk about this because most podcasts just want to talk about the animals, which are amazing, but but it's, it's, that's only, like I said, only half the equation. So it's fun to talk yeah. about the other side. <laughs> All right. We'll see you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin, for your insight and perspective into the reptile community, past, present, and future. And to the listeners, we've been given a view into one man's journey to turn his passion into a full-time business. It obviously is not easy. It takes a lot of work. But I'm hoping that you see from the people I bring on week after week that it is possible. So I invite you to dream a little, sweat a lot, and help chart the future of our reptile community. Thank you for joining me here. This is Bill Strand signing off. And I will see you next time on the Reptile Entrepreneur Podcast.